Uh, as we know, this week is a big week in the life of our nation as we have our next presidential election. And like many of you, I've been burdened by the division we see in our nation. And, and honestly, just, just thinking, what is my role in all this? As a follower of Jesus, what, what has God called me to do in the midst of what is a really difficult thing? Um, and so I've spent a lot of time praying and thinking and trying to learn from people who I really respect about what does it look like for a follower of Jesus to be engaged in this political world we live in. So I want to share with you three things that I believe we can and should do, especially this week. Here's the first. Pray. Pray. You know, often we assume that. We think, oh, yeah, pray, pray, of course. But seriously, if there was ever a time we need to pray for our country, we know it's now. So I would encourage you to pray. First Timothy chapter 2, Paul tells Timothy to pray for kings and people in high places and to pray for all leaders. Not just the ones we like, not just the ones we agree with. We are called to pray for all in leadership positions. So this week, despite what happens, I want to encourage you to commit to pray for that person who becomes our next president or who is reelected. Second thing I believe we can do is be engaged. God has given us government for justice, peace, and flourishing. And one of the ways that we can best love our neighbor as ourselves is by being involved in politics, as difficult as that can be sometimes. So I, I, I encourage you to consider things like voting and advocating for the things that you see from the Word of God and from the wisdom of God that God's leading you to support. But here's the thing about being engaged. We know one thing that Christians struggle with is we tend to be overly engaged or to get overly passionate or overly concerned about politics. And we start to communicate to the world that our hope is not in God, but that our hope is in man. And that's very serious because the Bible calls that idolatry. So we want to be cautious in this season. We want to guard our hearts and make sure we show and demonstrate by the way we communicate on social media or in person, the way we vote, the way we do all things, that Jesus is our Lord, period. And the third thing I believe we can do is trust. Trust. You know, we don't know what's going to happen this week, but God does. And none of that's going to be a surprise to him because he is in control of all things. And what he is doing is directing the world to his end moment, which is the return of Jesus Christ and the ushering in of the kingdom of God. So until then, we are called to be ambassadors for Christ, understanding that, yes, we're American citizens. We love our country. We support it. But more importantly, we're citizens of the kingdom of God. We are citizens of heaven. And we must demonstrate to a watching world that our trust is in Jesus Christ, that he reigns supreme, he is on his throne no matter what happens. So I think it would be great if we could spend a few moments this morning praying for our nation, praying for this week, praying for unity, and praying for the hope of Jesus to reign supreme in our nation. So would you bow your heads with me and let's take a few moments quietly. And I want to invite you to pray where you are and then I'll close us out.
Father, as I said, I'm burdened. Burdened for the hatred and division we see in our nation. Burdened for the open rebellion and sin we see. And open from the, a burden from the idolatry of people who see politics as more important than evangelism. Politics is more important than the church. God, I pray that above all things, Jesus, you would be the Lord of each of our lives. That our church would demonstrate this week that our hope is in Jesus Christ and that hope is unwavering. Whether the person we like gets elected or the person we don't like gets elected, that Jesus is still our hope of the world and our mission doesn't change. And that is to make disciples of all nations. So God, help us this week to guard our hearts, to remain focused, to have a deeper trust in you than ever before. And God, whatever happens this week, I pray that you would bring a supernatural unity, understanding, and love to our nation that we've never experienced before. That those who seek to do harm, to bring violence, oppression, anger, division to our nation, that you would silence those that you would guard us against that. And Lord, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, hey, grab your Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. You didn't know you were getting a sermon before a sermon. That's preacher problems. But um, Revelation chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. The summer I turned 16, my dad told me, said, son, if you want a truck, you have to get a job. No job, no truck. So guess what I did? I went out and I got a job. <laughs> I went down to our local grocery store and I got a job as a stock boy and a shopping cart retriever. Looks good on a resume, right? But I didn't get the job because I liked the job or I thought it would be fun. I got the job for the truck. And unfortunately, my attitude displayed my apathy for the work. I was that teenage employee. I'm ashamed to say it. I didn't work hard. I showed up a little late. I left as soon as I could, and I even text on my phone on the job. Terrible. feel bad. So one day, my boss, he grabbed me off aisle two, and he told me he wanted to see me in the break room. My boss, his name was Bernard. He was a Vietnam veteran who smoked two packs a day. And he sat me down at the break table, which was a piece of plywood on some milk crates. And he said, son, you've been here two months. How do you think you're doing on a scale of one to ten? Okay, I thought about it for a second. I don't want to say too much. I don't want to say too low. I feel like I was doing okay. So I said seven. He looked at me. I'll never forget. He looked at me deadpan. He said, I'd say a two. Like, what? A two? Like, seriously, I couldn't believe it. I mean, maybe a four, but a two, that was just bad. But then he told me, he said, you know what, son, I know you can do better than this, so I'm going to give you another chance. Go stock the milk. And I did. And, and as I walked into the dairy cooler that day, I thought, you know, I've got two options here. I can get angry and upset, and I can storm out of here, or I can listen and change. Well, I, I really liked having a truck, so I changed. But honestly, that, that conversation, it really got to me because I came to the realization that Bernard didn't have to hire me. He chose to make an investment in me, and I was being a total punk. 
I was hired to do a job. That was my purpose there, and I was not fulfilling it. So eventually I did get my act together. I went on to work there three more years and even got a few nickel raises along the way. And now today I am actually grateful for that conversation. I needed to learn some things about responsibility and work ethic. And most importantly, I needed a wake-up call. I needed someone to snatch me up and say, hey, you've been asked to do a job and you're not doing it. This morning, we're going to look at a similar wake-up call, except it's a lot more serious than the one I got, because this one comes from Jesus. It's his message to the church in a city called Laodicea, and when you boil it down, what he's saying, his message is essentially this. It's the title of our message today, What Good Are You Anyway? Man, a little harsh, right? But we're going to see it's actually filled with grace. This is the last letter. In the seven letters sent to the seven churches in Asia, at the beginning of Revelation, they were sent through the Apostle John from Jesus. And Jesus spoke to these struggling churches to encourage them and to challenge them. And I hope you guys have seen how relevant these seven letters are to the church in 2020. But this morning, let's walk through this final letter, verse by verse. And I'm just going to give you three things that we can do to make sure we're fulfilling the job that Jesus gave us. So look with me first at Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Laodicea, we know, was a very wealthy city, so much so that when they were struck with an earthquake in AD 60, they didn't require any help from Rome. So so they had this spirit of self-sufficiency. They thought, hey, look at us. We don't need anybody's help. We're rich. We're successful. We're good. And as a result, they became complacent and completely compromised in their witness. We know this because Jesus doesn't have to encourage them to withstand any trial or difficulty. Unlike the other churches, they're not even dealing with persecution because they aren't living out their faith. They have no witness in their community, and while this has led to some financial gain, they've lost much more. And just as Jesus has done in the previous six letters, he introduces himself in a way that is specific to the church's need. He calls himself the Amen. Now, typically, we think of that word Amen, we say that at the end of our prayers, or sometimes if the preacher says something real good, you might even shout it out, can I get an Amen. Pretty good, right on par with the first service. Um, but that word amen, it, it, means, it means truly. It means so be it. it. It means a little slang. It means right on or where I come from, yeehaw. Not really. But why does Jesus call himself the amen? Think about it. Jesus is saying that he is the full and final word. 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Jesus has the ultimate say over all things because he himself is the amen, the last word. He then says he's the faithful and true witness, and that word witness is translated later in Revelation as the word martyr. So what it's saying is that Jesus was faithful and true all the way unto death. He never wavered from the calling that God had given him, and he says he's the beginning of God's creation. That can be a little confusing to us, but we need to make sure we understand that Jesus was not the first created being. He was not created at all. Jesus has existed from all eternity. 
That word beginning can also mean ruler or first. So it's the idea that Jesus was the originator of God's creation. Colossians 1.16 says that all things were created through him and for him. So what this means is that Jesus has the authority to tell the creation what it's been created for. He is where we find our purpose. And it's with this authority he speaks. Look at verse 15 and 16. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. In this letter, we're going to see that a lot of what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea relates to the context that they lived in. And that's the case with the lukewarm water. The city of Laodicea's biggest weakness was they didn't have a good source of water, which turns out is really important for survival. Hierapolis, a nearby city, was known for its hot springs, while Colossae, another nearby city, was well known for its fresh cold water. But guess what temperature Laodicea's water was after being piped in nearly five miles? It's lukewarm. And what was lukewarm water good for in ancient times? Not much. Jesus says that's how your works are. Not cold, not hot, but lukewarm. Now, a lot of times how you hear this passage explained is that hot means a Christian who is really on fire for the Lord and cold means someone who has no faith. So to be lukewarm is to be so-so in the middle. The argument then goes that Jesus would rather you be lukewarm or would rather you be lost than be a lukewarm Christian. But, but looking at the context, we can see that that's not exactly what Jesus is saying. Why would Jesus rather us be lost than lukewarm? That doesn't make sense. As the background shows, shows us, cold water is not meant to be bad. Cold water had an important purpose in the ancient world, just like hot water. Hot water was used for medicinal purposes. Cold water was viewed as pure and refreshing, much as it is today. So Jesus is saying, like your water... You are not fulfilling your purpose. You're not useful like hot water or useful like cold water. Your faith is no good. It's useless. Man, this is strong language. I mean, so much so that Jesus says, as a result, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I don't know about you, but it doesn't sound very good to me. (laughs) I don't want to be spit out of the mouth of Jesus This is the consequence of missing your purpose. He continues in verse 17 and 18. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Church in Laodicea, they thought they were good. They were sitting back comfortably in their wealth, and they had no idea that they were spiritually poor and blind. Guys, this should be a warning to us. This tells us that we are not good judges of our own spiritual condition. We often think we are better than we really are. I heard a pastor say recently, When it comes to other people's sins, we like to act as the judge. But when it comes to our own sins, we like to act as the defense attorney. It is possible 
to become blind and hardened to your own spiritual state. It's possible to rest easy at night and be comfortable in, the Christian, in your Christian life and yet be totally missing God's purpose for you. This is why we need things that are going to challenge our view of ourselves. For example, the Word of God. If we will honestly engage the Word of God, it will challenge the way we look at ourselves. Another example is the local church. If we will be engaged with the church and allow people to speak into our lives, it will challenge our view of ourselves. And we need these things that, so that we do not become spiritually blind. Verse 18, Jesus tells them, he says, even though you think you got it all, there are actually some things you need. And these are things you can only buy from me, gold garments and eye salve. Now, he doesn't use these three things by accident, but Jesus is actually being intentional and a little savage because these are the exact three things that the city of Laodicea was known for. We already mentioned they had a lot of wealth, but he says, no, you need true riches that come only from me. They were also famous for manufacturing a rare black woolen fabric, yet he says, no, you need white garments to cover your sin and shame. And they were also known for their medical school, which exported this powder that was used to make, you guessed it, ISAF. And yet, yet, yet Jesus says they needed salve from him so they could truly see. Jesus teaches us here that we can have everything the world offers. We can be the richest person on the planet, but apart from him, we have nothing. And on the flip side, we can have absolutely nothing to our name, but if we have Jesus, we have everything. So Jesus, in this passage, he's like a boxer just throwing hooks to the jaw of the, of the Laodicean church. Yet, here's why he's being so harsh with them. Look at verses 19 through 20. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is why Jesus is going after the church so hard. He loves them. He loves them. He cares about them. And yeah, it's tough love, but this is something we see throughout the Bible. God disciplines those he loves. It's like loving discipline from a father to a child, and, and this is grace. Things like Chemotherapy and radiation and surgery are painful, difficult procedures, but they have a good purpose, which is to heal the body from cancer. In the same way, Jesus often uses difficulty and pain to heal us from our sin. See, Jesus loves this church. He wants to see them live out the purpose that he's called them to. He wants to see them have an impact in their community. So he says, repent. And then he gives them some great news. He says, I'm standing at the door knocking. Oftentimes we hear this verse used in the context of evangelism. But notice, Jesus is speaking to the church. He's speaking to the restoration of fellowship that we need when we fall into sin. So Jesus is saying, hey, even though I've said some tough things, even though you're under my discipline, I still love you. And I'm right outside the door knocking, ready to come in. If you will just repent and let me in. This is what repentance is. When we sin, we kick Jesus out and try to do things our own way. And when we repent, we bring him back in. And the good news is he doesn't have to be begged or chased down. He's waiting to come back in and sit down and have a meal with us. So again, Jesus gives grace. 
And here's the last verse he has for him. Verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This is why Jesus pursues his church. Not only do we have a job to do here on earth, but we have a job in eternity. We're going to rule with Christ. And we talked about this idea some weeks ago, but this is a big deal. Jesus is going to entrust us with the responsibility of sitting on his throne. So he wants to make sure that we fulfill our responsibility here on earth. That's why Jesus said in Luke 12, 48, Everyone to whom much is given of him, much will be required. So let me ask you the question that is the title of our message this morning. What good are you anyway? That's pretty abrasive, isn't it? It's not my typical style to be quite so aggressive, but that's the tone of this passage. That's the question for all of us, including me. Micah, what good are you anyway? Are you useful to God and his kingdom? Or are you more like the lukewarm water that will be spat out of his mouth? Let me close by just giving you quickly three things that we must do to fulfill our purpose and the job that we've been given. Here's the first. We have to look to Jesus for our mission. When you get a new job, typically you go through a time of training, right? They might match you up with someone else who also does your job, and you watch and learn from him, and the idea is, hey, you do what they do so you can replicate their success. This is exactly what Jesus did with his disciples He selected them, he trained them up, and he had this method to his training to the point where after his resurrection, he used his last words to commission them out for the mission. And what was the mission? What was he training them to do? Make disciples. Matthew 28 says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. That was the mission, and that mission has not changed because that mission is not complete. So the great commission is our mission as well. We are called. To make disciples of all nations, no matter who you are, how long you've been a Christian, what you know or don't know, you were called to make disciples. And to not do so is to miss the very purpose for your life. But unfortunately, many believers today have become like the church in Laodicea. We've become complacent. We've become convinced by the culture that our mission is to be successful, get a good job. Take your kids to church when you can. Be a good person. Be a good American. And just try to be happy. I mean, isn't that what the founders of this country said? We have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those aren't bad things. It's great. But friends, we do not exist for those things. Those things are not our mission. Our mission is to make disciples of all nations and to not do so is to waste our lives. So how do we do it? What does that look like? We talk about it. Well, it looks like Jesus. Jesus is our example for the mission. Did Jesus just go around saying, hey, pray this prayer after me and I'm going to give you a ticket to heaven? No. Did Jesus go around filling stadiums and leading marches on the Roman capital? No. Jesus said his mission was to seek and save the lost. So he was actively doing two things. Number one, he was looking for people that came across his path who were lost to share the good news of the gospel with them. 
Is this something that you're doing as well? Are you actively looking for people that God places in your life who don't know Jesus? Are you then seeking to build a relationship with that person so you can share the good news of the gospel with them? If you're not doing that, according to Revelation 3, you're lukewarm water. Secondly, Jesus then invested his time and life into a small group of people for their maturity and growth. He taught them, spent time with them, trained them up and sent them out, all for the purpose of multiplication. Also that they could go and do the exact same thing that he did for them. That's the beauty and genius of discipleship. It multiplies. So are you actively investing in another believer for the sake of their growth? Are you showing them how to follow Jesus in their daily life using the spiritual discipline so that they can do the same with someone else? If you're not doing that, according to Revelation 3, you're lukewarm water. Jesus lived the mission, and when he calls us to follow him, he calls us to continue that mission. So that's first. We look to Jesus for our mission. Here's the second thing we must do. Look to Jesus for your significance. The church in Laodicea found their significance in the fact that they were wealthy. Because they had a lot of money and success and stuff, they thought they were doing great. That was their standard. And all of us are tempted to do the same thing. It's called idolatry. An idol is not a little golden calf we worship at home that we think of in our heads. Idolatry is, is anything or anyone we put in the place of God. It's anything that we attempt to find our identity and significance in apart from Christ. And all of us are battling these idols, whether we realize it or not. So think with me. Where are you tempted to find your significance? The number one way to spot an idol in your life is to imagine life without it. An idol is something we don't want to lose and we'll protect at all costs. Maybe like the Laodicean church, your idol is wealth or stuff. If you were to suddenly lose your home or your retirement account or your, all your things, would, would everything come crashing down for you? Or maybe you're tempted to find your significance in family. If you were to suddenly lose your spouse or a child, and of course that would be devastating for any of us, but would you lose your sense of purpose and identity in this life? Or maybe you're tempted to find your significance in your political party or your stance on a particular issue. This week, we know there are going to be a lot of folks who are going to be so angry and depressed that their candidate lost, and others that are going to be so happy and arrogant that their candidate won, that their purpose and identity will either be shattered or vindicated. Friends, wealth and family and politics, these are not bad things. These are not evil things. But anything can be sinful and idolatrous when we try to find our significance and identity and purpose in that thing. See, Jesus and Jesus alone is where our purpose is found. Jesus is our identity, period. And to look anywhere else makes you a lukewarm Christian. Here's the third and last thing we must do and we're done. Look to Jesus for your restoration. This one is huge because as we wander away and we become complacent, as we lose sight of the mission or find our significance in other things, and this is going to happen to all of us because we're all sinners, 
As this happens, Jesus is ready and willing to restore us. Sometimes he will discipline us. He'll bring things into our lives that will be painful, but he does this out of love. And when we repent and turn back to him, he is at the door knocking, ready to come in and eat with us. But we have to open the door. We have to let him in. How do we do that? I mean, practically, what does that look like? Well, I think it starts with being honest with God in prayer. So here's what I want to do. I want to do something a little different this morning as we conclude our service. I want to lead two groups of people in this room in a prayer, simple prayer this morning. I'm not going to make anybody stand up or do anything, but just pray silently where you are. Here's the first group of people I want to speak to. If you're here this morning and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, you've never made that relationship official, maybe you've called yourself a Christian or you've been in church, you've done a lot of good things, but you've never trusted in him, I want to lead you this morning in what's called a prayer of salvation. And that can be a little confusing because a prayer doesn't save us. It's not a magic prayer. It's not even really about using the right words. Jesus is the one who saves us. Prayer is simply the way we express our trust in him to do so. So I want to invite everyone in the room right now to bow your head and close your eyes. And if you're here today and you want to turn away from your sins and trust in Jesus to save you, pray this silently after me, but from your own heart. Say, dear God, I confess that I have sinned against you. So that means I deserve your judgment. But I believe you sent your son Jesus to die in my place and rise from the dead. So today I turn away from my sin and I place my trust in Jesus. To save me. I surrender my life to you. Amen. I want to invite you to look back this way. As I said, I want to also lead a second group of people in a prayer. Maybe you're here and you've already made that decision to give your life to Jesus, but you would honestly say today, I'm a lukewarm Christian. I'm not living out the purpose for my life on mission with Jesus. I want to be useful for God's kingdom. I want to make a difference eternally with my life. If that's you, I want to lead you through a prayer today. So let's bow our heads one more time. If God is convicting or speaking into your heart in that way this morning, pray this silently after me. Say, dear God, I confess my lack of engagement in the mission. I want to be useful for your kingdom. I want my life to matter for eternity. So give me a burden for the lost. Give me boldness in sharing my faith. Bring lost people into my path. And show me who I can disciple. 
use me for your glory. However, wherever, whenever. Amen. You guys can look this way again. If you prayed that first prayer this morning, that prayer of salvation, your next step is to let someone know. I'll be around after the service along with our lead pastor, Pastor Derek, who's visiting with us today. Let us know so that we can talk to you about what that means, about your next step, which is making that decision public through baptism and becoming a part of our church. If you prayed that second prayer this morning, again, I want to encourage you to let someone know. Let someone know who you're close to so they can hold you accountable whether that be a Sunday school teacher or a friend or a spouse or family member, we're not meant to accomplish the mission on our own. Because the important thing is, is that each of us, all of us, commit to using the lives that God has given us on mission for God, with the people of God, for the glory of God. So let's conclude this section as Jesus has in each letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray.